Welcome to the Maidcast, everybody. Uh, my name is Alex Kalpikoff. You can just call me Red on this podcast, and we're going to be talking about some great new stuff today. Miles, go ahead, introduce yourself. My name is Miles Kerker. I'll also be on this podcast talking about stuff. <laughs> and my name is Anthony Morila, and I will also be co-hosting this podcast. We're going to be talking about some video game history today, uh, the technology, like a little bit about some some of the stuff we have at the Video Game Museum, uh, lots of dev kits, rare systems, rare games, and the culture behind the industry we try to exhibit. We try and make sure that everything at the Maid is playable and preserved in the way that it's meant to be played with video games. So we want everybody to enjoy themselves and we yet to have somebody be disappointed by what they see at the museum. Uh, we hope to bring everybody up to speed and Alex Handy, our founder, will give a little talk about Sega bringing an exhibit to the space before COVID. With the launch of the Sonic the Hedgehog video game, I mean, movie, uh, which was the highest grossing movie of this year, yay 2020. <laughs> That's not really a high bar, though. I mean, it's not a terribly high bar, but it's a bar, and they passed it, and it's a video game. I mean, game you, can movie, say, so. you can say, hey, we did the highest grossing movie. I'm not discounting that. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. Yeah, for this far as this year What else came out this year? No, we don't need to go into this. No. <laughs> Not just the actual made itself being just a fun place to hang out and play video games. It's also, I think, more importantly, an effort to preserve video games, not only record and celebrate them, but to ensure that these often overlooked pieces of culture get treated as history, just like any other media. Because a lot of the time, this kind of, you know, old games, old consoles, they just sort of get swept under the rug and forgotten about. And I think it's important to sort of capture that history and to preserve it for people who actually want to learn about it. Yeah, it's it's very different than something else like you don't see as many video game museums as you do film museums or pop culture museums and stuff. Mm -hmm. The main podcast is also a series of small lectures on specific instances in the history of video games. So the founder, Alex Handy, will be sort of um, giving little sort of uh, talks here and there. Interesting facts, lots of interesting facts. Now let's get into the news of the day. So news of the day, uh, we're just basically going to talk about the new builds for the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. These are the new consoles coming out for the big name companies this year in November, and they are both getting more and more PC-like. Uh, they both have AMD RDNA 2 processors. The PS5 has been claiming 10 teraflops, a little bit over, where the, uh, the Series X has been claiming 12. They both have ray chasing capability. They're both capitalizing on 8K. They both claim up to 120 frames a second. They're very similar, but there's a couple little differences before them, whereas the Series X has a really interesting thing that I think you guys might be interested in, but they have, they're going to be releasing a massive back catalog of 360 games that are remastered and immediately playable once you purchase the Series X, so you don't have to buy them again. They're just going to be available for you to play in super smooth, no loading time, Series X fashion. The PS5 is going to have a bunch of backwards compatibility with PS4 games, but they have yet to say anything thing about PS3 games going back two generations and the upgrades we will maybe potentially see from them. But what do you guys think about this new generation coming up? So I think that in terms of just the numbers, the Xbox Series X has a slight edge over the PS5. It's going a little faster. It's got a slightly larger SSD and it's got a much larger catalog just off the bat of games because not only is it allowing Xbox One games and Xbox 360 games, it's also allowing a certain amount of original Xbox games back into its yeah. library, which I think is great. Yeah, I think that's definitely a positive for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Both of these consoles are essentially my computer, which yeah. I think is a really interesting thing because 
we've we've sort of gotten to this point where all three of them are or all three major consoles are doing very similar things the switch sort of does its own thing but you know the the computer the playstation and the xbox are all essentially interchangeable it's just that my computer cost i think at when i bought it i think it cost about two thousand dollars yeah and now we're seeing it for 500 and that's incredible yeah i think it's pretty crazy what's coming up like there's so much i I just recently built a pc as well and it's only slightly more powerful than this but probably about three times as much as the cost of one of these consoles now there's Mm going to be so much more like available but the console experience is i think what also drives people to them like just being able to download a game turn on your console and start playing is something that's and like the way you want it to, instead of like having to adjust certain preferences, download mods and all the other things that you can do on a computer, the simplicity of a console system, I think still drives people. And there's still something to be said about like a living room experience rather than a desk gaming experience too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, I still have, I mean, right now, currently I still have my PS4 and my computer on my desk and I just have to swap out my HDMI cable at the moment because I haven't upgraded to a uh, display port uh, master race quality yet uh but it'll all get done and we'll all eventually kind of mesh together yeah i mean we've also seen like crossplay stuff at the moment as like the new consoles now are ta- are starting to get major crossplay with every major game and i've definitely been in lobbies where i just get destroyed by pc players so i definitely yeah. it's definitely made myself aware that pc players have entered the game i think that's really a good thing because it sort of means that we've gotten past the like, oh, we're going to keep all these gated ecosystems, these closed gardens, walled gardens, where where each console really doesn't want to interact with anyone else because they're afraid of competition or, you know, what have you. I think that us moving into sort of this, we're all gaming, we're all doing the same thing. Let's just hang out together and have fun. That's that's, I think, a much more healthy sort of way to approach the industry. Yeah, I agree. There's so much more that, I mean, gamers at heart are gamers at heart. Mm -hmm. So everybody who enjoys a game would kind of want to be able to play with everybody or share an experience, you know, except Nintendo who keeps to their special part of the arena. No, they have a special place in people's hearts. They definitely do. I mean, as Alex will talk in this little bit, no one can really touch their handheld game. And now that their main console, it's a handheld compatibility thing. It's... Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Yeah. One small piece of news more. One more small piece of news. Yeah. Rogue, the original 1980 ASCII text game developed by Michael Toy and Glenn Wickman, is being released on Steam later this month, which is October. And I just thought that was really interesting because I remember Rogue, I've never played Rogue, but I remember it being this sort of hallmark of this is difficult, this is punishing this is going to be extremely it was it was in it was genre bending it's it spawned the roguelike genre it made this kind of culture of we want things to be difficult and for you to fail and try again and fail and try again and each time being this new experience and i think that getting to see the original in its original form at least or well close enough to you know run on modern computers um is really an, an excellent opportunity for us to go back and look at you know what what originally what originated this kind of culture of you know the punishing game yeah it's going to be really interesting to see how well a new text game fares in this i wonder if people are going to be really upset with how ascii Mm -hmm. operates trying it for the first time there's been it's a bit like um dwarf fortress like it's an interesting game but boy is it hard to understand what you're looking at because you know it's all text just displayed as visuals 
And it's very strange. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's just kind of like a first iteration of creating a big space where you they didn't have graphics. So you had to create the space in your head, which is kind of cool because then everybody had their own like unique experience. There, and to be honest, I haven't played too many roguelikes in my time, but there's been I've watched a decent amount of playthroughs of these like text based adventures and I can tell for certain every time I read what they're reading, I am not picturing the Mm -hmm. same thing. I have a a different picture in my head, in my head movies, than they do in their head movies. And with that, everybody, I think it's time for us to move on to Alex Handy talking about a couple special instances at The Maid, uh, special stories, and then a little chat with our community manager, Leland Heller. Hello there. My name is Alex Handy. I am the founder of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. Although uh, I am only here on the uh, backs of some amazing volunteers who have done all the actual work, I'm just the guy who blathers and talks all the time. And that's exactly what this podcast, Middle Sort of Sandwich Meat, is for, for me to blather at you for a good 10 to 20 minutes about a single subject. And in future episodes, we will specifically look at consoles like the Atari 2600, the Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Nintendo, N64. We'll look at specific games. We'll generally be deep diving into things that people want me to deep dive into. And as much as I can deep dive, because while I know a lot about these things, I would never suggest that I know everything there is to know and everything that we will be telling you about in these podcasts, I hope that you will look at as trailheads to do your own research and go a little deeper into the history of this wonderful industry that has such a a rich sort of heritage after only having existed for 40 to 50 years now. Anyway, in this inaugural episode, I wanted to explain what the museum was, how it came to be, and sort of cover some of the topics I haven't covered in other ancillary materials about the museum. Go a little deeper into the collection if I have the time here. Uh, So let's start off with how the museum began and what it is. The museum is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit video game museum uh, located in Oakland, California. We had playable exhibits across all of the systems that you're mostly familiar with. Certainly there were some gaps. We did not have a playable 3DO on the floor, but we had the 2600, the Intellivision, the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Super Nintendo, the N64, the PlayStation, the PlayStation 2, the PlayStation 3. Everything was out there and you could come in and say, I want to play this game on that console. And that was what we would offer because, uh, frankly, a video game museum without playable exhibits is like a art gallery with the lights off. In addition to doing this sort of preservation, playable preservation, as you could call it, uh, we also have been performing educational classes to teach children how to program over the years. Now, we haven't just taught children. We've had adult classes, too. But our real big thing is to inspire the next generation of game developers. We want the kids to come to our classes and say, oh, wow, hey, I, I can do this. That's so cool. I have a million ideas because every kid has a million video game ideas. And just showing them that they are able to do it can turn them on to a lifetime sort of interest. I had myself, uh, when I was a child, I went to a computer camp in the very, very early 80s and learned how to program BASIC on an Apple II. And, uh, you know, that changed my life. That's why I was able to get into a sort of technology career. And that's sort of what we're trying to replicate here. You know, that class didn't make me into an expert, but it did set me on a path. And all of the museum's classes are free and always will be free. We do not charge for them. Uh, We do charge admissions and we do charge for events and birthday parties and corporate events and so forth. And that was how we were funding the museum. But of course, the COVID's occurred and we have had to pack everything into storage. So now for the next two years, we expect we're going to be on a full-time fundraising campaign and 
doing things like podcasts and videos to try to reach out to people out there, keep the work alive, keep the preservation alive, the memories of the people who built this industry alive as best we can during these trying times and prepare for the next space for the museum. One of the things that we have always needed for the museum is a long-term home, and that's our goal over the next few years is to be able to fund and find such a location that we could, where the museum can stand for the tests of time, as it already has, right? I mean, we've been through a lot. Just to get to this point, we will be back. Anyway, a few things I wanted to talk about inside the museum, and I always talk about when people come, are the Gizmondo, the Pippin, and uh, usually, you know, whatever else they, they sort of point at at random. So I can't really think of any of the third one offhand, aside from like the usually the GameCube dev kits or Wii dev kits, things like that are usually of interest to people. But the first two things that I wanted to discuss, the Gizmondo and the Pippin, uh, these are always interesting little side topics in the games industry's history. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody out there is familiar with the Gizmondo, but if you've ever seen the movie The Producers, you are familiar with the basic business model of the Gizmondo. Uh, the Producers is a movie about two gentlemen who decide to take a thousand percent investment in a Broadway show that they know will they, they know will fail. The Broadway show is Springtime for Hitler, and the thousand percent investment in a failed show just goes all into their pockets. But a thousand percent investment in a success, well, you you go to jail. The Gizmondo was started by a company called Tiger Telematics in two thousand four. 2003, probably, they started raising money, about $250 million of it in the UK on the golf courses. Uh, they hired a gentleman named Sir Clive Sinclair to design the handheld. Sir Clive Sinclair had designed the Timex Sinclair, also known as the Spectrum, extremely popular computer in the early 80s in the UK. This company, Tiger Telematics, took that money. They bought a game studio in Austin, Texas. They bought all the right people and PR firms and all the things you would do if you really were a big, swinging, extremely powerful video game company. They got contracts with EA. EA built some games for it. They did SSX and then a motorcycle game. And then it came out about a few weeks after launch that uh, the company really wasn't fulfilling any of its orders. Nobody on charge of any of its white collar areas could be contacted. It basically just dissolved. And they had produced a handheld, a wireless color hand, uh, color screen handheld that was going to compete with the Game Boy in about 2005. I mean, the thing did terribly, right? Like nobody can compete with Nintendo's handhelds. Sony has been struggling for years to compete with Nintendo's handhelds. And so if there was ever an industry you knew you were going to fail at, if you didn't you know, have billions and billions of dollars to compete in, it's the handheld video game market in 2005. And sure enough, Gizmondo turned out to be a front for the Swedish Mafia. There really is such a thing because uh, a gentleman who is uh, in charge of, he, I believe he was the vice president in charge of marketing for Gizmondo, Stefan Eriksson, was found to be number three on Sweden's most wanted list. And he was later apprehended outside of Los Angeles next to a sheared in half Ferrari Enzo carrying a handgun. The Ferrari was not registered in the United States, and I don't believe there were any Enzos in the United States at the time. I could be wrong. But this gentleman was then extradited to Sweden. And that's the story of the Gizmondo, whom we have one of them at the museum. And not only do we have the Gizmondo, but that wonderful game studio in Austin, the poor people who got caught up in all this, and that's the, the real nasty thing about white-collar crime, is it just catches up so many in, in so many people's lives and can really ruin them. This whole studio, you know, 
having been purchased, thought that they were going to be making many more games. And they produced a terrific game called Hit and Myth, which is a twin stick shooter in the same vein as Robotron 1984. However, it is an adventure style one. So you're sort of scrolling through various levels and gathering power ups. Terrific game. But the studio was basically caught up in the middle of this. And we have one of the only copies of that game out there at the museum. It was never actually released. So one of the rarer things in the museum, an unreleased game for a effectively unreleased handheld console that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. So, so there's the first item I thought I'd discuss. There's a wonderful write-up of this by Simon Carlos out there on, I believe it's on Game Set Watch. He did like a 10,000 word write-up of it and it is just spectacular. Simon is an absolutely class individual who I recommend anyone out there interested in the games industry or has a maybe a, an indie games company, you should definitely look and contact Simon. He does a lot of great work to help small game companies figure out how the heck you can get their games identified and seen in the marketplace. And honestly, that's a huge problem in the games industry today. I don't know if anybody's noticed this on their Android or iPhone. Like, how do you know what to download? There's a million choices. And that was sort of what was going on in the 90s when the CD hit the video game consoles. That was the period of the PlayStation in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, the, the 3DO, the CDI and the Pippin. And I always love to show people the Pippin because very few people realize that Apple actually worked on a video game console. They worked with Bandai and they created a home entertainment and information dispersal system based on CDs. So you would pop in an encyclopedia, which fit on a CD, a whole encyclopedia. Can you imagine? And you would uh, navigate this encyclopedia and read about birds and trees and international flags and so forth on your home television with your loved ones on the couch. It's an amazing time to be alive in the mid 90s when there was this absolute fist fight between large companies to try to become what they called the set top box. That was the fight. This was Apple's set top box, and it was also distributed in Japan. Unfortunately, it really was not a very well, it wasn't fully baked, I want to say. And one of the things that is indicative of this when you're using the system is that if you play the game Marathon, uh, there is a combination Marathon 1 and 2 CD, the game made by Bungie, their first, well, not their first first-person shooter, their second first-person shooter. They could not figure out how to get back to the front menu. They couldn't figure out how to, like, trigger the Pippin to go back to the load screen. You know what I mean? Like the, the menu that you would have. In the a normal Macintosh, you would pause the game by hitting, like, escape and then mouse up to the top screen and click on a menu and drop down to choose new game, save, whatever. Instead, on the Pippin, you couldn't do that. There's no mouse. So the team, uh, which consisted of, uh, I believe, just it was, it was Jason Jones and Alexander Seropian, the founders of Bungie, who had to do this themselves. Uh, but they figured out the only way to get back to that menu screen was to just crash the Pippin. So they found a crash bug. And whenever you wanted to pause and restart the game, you went to the pause menu and you hit restart or, you know, quit. It just crashed the Pippin and it would just reboot. And then you would come to the menu screen again. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I mean by a little bit half-baked. And now I would love to bring in our current star at the museum with all of these wonderful donors and Patreon supporters who have come online recently to help us through these trying times. I wanted to introduce you to who is our effectively our community manager, our development director and only paid employee, although we cannot afford to pay them what they're actually worth. They're very gracious to continue to work for us. Leland, Leland, 
Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. I think you did a wonderful job of introducing me. That's everything I, maybe everything I do. I wear a lot of different hats at this organization. And yeah, chances are if you've talked to someone at the museum recently, you've probably been talking to me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Leland Heller, for joining us on the, our own podcast. I suppose it's <laughs> not very uh, unexpected to have you here. But uh, can you tell everybody what you're what you're actually doing day to day? I know we have completely overwhelmed you, so. Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I am, you know, sending thank you emails out to donors. I am writing posts for Patreon. We have a lot of different posts there about what we're doing, highlighting some stuff from our collection that's coming up. I'm, yeah, any sort of social media posts, things on Twitter. I write grants as well. I try to convince people to care about the museum. I think that kind of sums up everything I do is, you know, trying to convince people that this museum is is worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we greatly appreciate the work you do there. And also, of course, I know you're working on the current the PowerPoint deck that explains, you know, how corporations can get involved and you're working on uh, the longer term exhibition ideas that some places have given us. Uh, there's just so much on your plate. I really feel... Very grateful for all the work you do do. What can people out there do to make your life and job easier? Yeah, well, I think right now, obviously, if people are able to donate to the museum, um, that would be amazing right now, um, either on Patreon or just through PayPal. Um, all of our funds are going to creating the video game museum of our dreams. We would love to be out of storage as soon as possible. And as soon as possible really depends on being able to raise the money that it's going to take to create the ideal video game rather than just a half-baked one. If Also, people have connections at larger corporations, larger companies, especially video game ones that you know how to get in contact with and you think would maybe be interested in um, helping us out as well. Like that is really, really super helpful to us right now. Yeah. And I know that one of the things that we've been discussing when it comes to corporate sponsorships and, you know, since we're the the weirdos in the uh, nonprofit museum space, we're sort of a bunch of tech nerds and you're the only trained museum person in our orbit um we are so sort of like what what do corporations want what can we offer them aside from you know that the the feel-good hug of of inspiring the next generation of game developers and training the people that'll be hiring in 20 years and helping the community of oakland and preserving the heritage and the memory of all the people that have worked at their companies and produced these wonderful games aside from all of that what is it the corporations want in when it comes to a sort of a donation engagement Well, I mean, you get your name on the wall, which is one thing. Something we'd love to do in the future is working with larger corporations to create exhibitions. We did this with the new Sonic movie. That was our last kind of exhibition before we had to shut the museum down. But since a lot of the corporations that would be investing in us uh, are video game ones. Um, We'd love to work with them creating an exhibition, maybe about one of their upcoming games, one of their existing games in our new museum space, as well as once we have this beautiful, gorgeous new space, it's going to be really great for events. (laughs) I mean, at this point, the event we had in 2020 was to celebrate highest grossing film of 2020. True. Yes. We were directly involved in the highest grossing film of 2020. That's a big accomplishment. (laughs) It got there fast. It went really fast. Yeah. (laughs) 
that was a really fun party, actually. Sega and the, and the PR firm that we had worked with, did. they were just terrific. I mean, they brought blue cake and blue soda and the giant, you know, the, the huge cardboard standee that they already had they were sending out to movie theaters, right? Like, we had that in the museum for... <laughs> Till very, very recently. And like, it was a great photo op. And it was really, that was a really fun way to engage. And then especially after we did the uh, the 20th anniversary of the Dreamcast in September, which was a lot of fun too, right? Like, so, right. Uh, so is that, thank you, Sega. Uh, but we will be continuing to call out companies that help us out on this podcast as well. One I'd like to call out definitely for helping us in the past is Ubisoft. We love Ubisoft. They're located in San Francisco. We adore them. Some wonderful people that have volunteered at the museum work there and such as that. Oh, I'll, I'll do shout outs. I mean, this podcast is for gratuity, or mm-hmm. not gratuity, but to be, gr- to be, to show gratitude. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Chris Berkey and, uh, Travis. Yeah. We all love Travis. Uh, what is, I can't even remember Travis's last name because he has a nickname and stuff, but, uh, very big thank yous go out to places like Ubisoft and Sega for supporting us. Big thank yous to Dolby, uh, and Lori over there who has supported us for many, many years. But, uh, we would love to add other names to these lists of uh, supporters. Absolutely. And also, you know, I think it's, it's worth mentioning you did at the top that how much the maid runs on volunteers. That's, you know, since since coming to this organization, I've realized how much of a lovely, lovely place we have here and a lovely community that we've built. And it's all people just really volunteering their time and wanting to help out and feeling passionate about this organization. And that's so lovely to be a part of. Absolutely. Everybody who's working on this podcast right now is volunteering their time, sitting here listening to me blather into a microphone for <laughs> no good reason. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to volunteer. But people, uh, I mean, I, I, I feel very... I'm worried to start naming people because this podcast will just end up being me reading a bunch of names, but I mean, and I will always leave somebody out by accident. I don't want to offend anybody, but definitely huge thanks to uh, Chris Berkey, Travis Kindred, to Chris Wolf, to Anders Savvel, to, I'm just going to go down the line here. I mean, there's so many amazing volunteers that we've had over the years. I can't even begin to name them. And I'm sure, I'm sure we'll end up having a lot of them on this podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence so Miyoto, Van Ha. I mean, uh, the one person behind all of this is her name is Van Ha, and Van is absolutely the linchpin of this organization. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, but if Van got hit by a bus, this place would just burn. It would not exist. We'd all be doomed. Uh, Van <laughs> makes sure the ba- the bills are paid and we do everything right. Van is an amazing treasure. Should be very upset that I mentioned her in the podcast. <laughs> doing it. Uh, and th- there'll be other people. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to leave anybody out. We've got a lot of podcasts coming up, and if, if please poke me, if like you didn't you didn't mention me, I will mention you a hundred times in the next one because we do have so many volunteers who have made this place what it is, and that's really what the museum is about is sort of a shared love of video games, and it's not about as I keep saying, it's not about me. You know, it's about building something that we can all agree is awesome. I don't right. think anybody who came to the museum ever said this sucks. Like it, w- who who wouldn't like a room where you play one of 12,000 video games on demand. That's kind of like okay in anybody's video game book. Exactly. It is a really fun experience watching someone experience the museum for the first time, no matter how old they are, no matter how into video games they are. Like everybody has this kind of moment of awe when they kind of realize that whole like I have 12,000 video games at my disposal thing. And I, that's been so wonderful to watch in the times that I have been able to experience the museum in its full glory. And something that we'd like to get back to as soon as possible. Exactly. There's nothing better than watching uh, a, a parent show their child where the warp zone is in level one, two <laughs> of Super Mario Brothers. The, the kids almost always go, Mom, Mom doesn't know about video games. How'd she know that? <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> right. 
Well, thank you for joining us, Leland. I think that we have accomplished, hopefully, our goals in this first episode of our podcast, and we'll have you on in the future. Hopefully. Do, do I get to shout out a, a video game I've been into? <laughs> yeah, please, please. It's not that interesting. I've just been playing Minecraft. <laughs> a friend of mine started a it's... Minecraft server up, and so I've been getting back into that, building a treehouse right now. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way we can kind of hang out with each other in this COVID way. So I don't, I mean... I hope you're seeing and spending some quality Minecraft time with your friends. Right. Oh, and also I want to shout out uh, Spiritfarer, which is an indie game that came out fairly recently that I've been playing on the Switch. It's also on PC. It's a very fun little game with a beautiful art style and it has a lot of like exploration, kind of management things going on as well. And you should definitely check it out. Excellent. Well, thanks for that uh, that wonderful indie game tip. We always love indie games. Uh, thanks you for coming on, Leland. Yeah. And I'm going to pass it back to the the team back in the studio. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks. That was Alex Handy and Leland Heller talking about uh, the community side of the maid. And now, in our closing statements, Anthony, what do you plan? So currently I'm playing Resident Evil Zero just to sort of prep me up for Halloween, getting all these jump scares and my da- daily dose of jump scares in. Um, fun game. I really like the whole co-op uh, system and switching between characters. And I'm just really curious about the whole Resident Evil lore since, you know, we have the new Resident Evil coming out, Resident Evil 8, The Village. So I'm just sort of trying to play it in a logical order. Nice. So Miles, what have you been playing? Recently, I finished up Horizon Zero Dawn, which I was playing through the, for, for the first time on PC. Ooh. And I really enjoyed it. Yes. I thought it was an excellent story. There were a couple gameplay mechanics that I was a bit iffy on. It never did anything perfectly, but it always did everything extremely well. Okay. It was sort of this great combination of a, a very story-driven game and a very sort of open-world experience that felt very much like Breath of the Wild or one of those other games that does that. It was very reminiscent of Breath of the Wild to me because it was, you know, running and climbing and, you know, hitting all the locations to open up your map and exploring. And it was all about just like experiencing this world to its fullest extent. And I really enjoyed sort of that aspect of it. And the story itself and the setting was really unique. And I really was looking for something like that in a game because a lot of games sort of fall into these categories of, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know exactly what this is and what it's about before I even start playing. Yeah. And with Horizon, I was constantly surprised. Yeah. And I, yeah, it really, it really did something for me and I'm eagerly awaiting the sequel. When they announced the sequel for the PS5, I was also super stoked on that. Even though I've never played, it was always a game that caught my eye. But I was slowly trying to tick off games that were Mm -hmm. on my list a little bit in front of that. But that is currently on like the top of my list to play after I finish the two games I'm currently on. But it looks um, it it looked new. It looked refreshing. It didn't look like anything else. I mean, it took like aspects from other games that it certainly looks amazing. Is there anything like you can tell? Like, what was your favorite? Is there like a favorite robot dinosaur that you've come across yet? Oh, man. The the DLC area is especially difficult compared to the rest of the game. And that's cool, though. A challenge. Yeah, it is. I like DLC that gives you a push it is definitely a step up in terms of difficulty and i really enjoyed that because you know i was playing the main game i got about halfway through it and i was like okay i'm gonna just take a step back from the story and 
do everything else first, which I kind of tend to do in open world games. Um, and so I started doing the DLC and it turns out it had its own, it had its own story, but it was also just this new open world area that was considerably more challenging than the rest of the world. And I think it's called the Scorcher and the Scorcher and, or no, it's the Ice Claw. Okay. The Ice Claw is a robot bear made of ice. Nice. And it is by far the most interesting fight in the game. That's awesome. And it's just a generic monster that, you know, roams around wherever, but it's, it's challenging and it's really fun. That's awesome. Uh, there's so many the fact that you can get i mean just new iterations and kind of make your own way about new creatures i mean just make robots out of them and you can make them do whatever you want make them unique specialties right right i like that system a lot anyway well that sounds good this is the point in the podcast where we ask our listeners if they have any questions so next week we'll be talking about ancient history or the early pioneers of gaming in the 50s 60s and 70s and we eagerly look forward to talking about that so for now thank you for listening to the museum of art and digital entertainment's official podcast if you've got any thoughts questions corrections or general museum ideas please send us an email at info at we'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patreon supporters patreon donors will be getting this podcast one week before it goes public on the major streaming services and we'll continue that with future episodes every week sounds great till then i've been miles i've been alex and i'm anthony and see you talk to you next time